Welcome to the podcast, Bringing Truth to Life, where we talk about what the scriptures say that can help you get unstuck from the thorny issues of life and encourage you to live the life you've been wanting to live with Christ. Our speaker today is Henry Clay. We are in a series called Parenting by Heart, looking at principles that we have found helpful in the first 10 years of parenting. May this be helpful to you, and may it also give you truth to share with those you seek to encourage. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can talk about things that are near to your heart. Guide us tonight, help us to work our way through this material to the glory of your name. We pray that it will land and be helpful in each home. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a, a brief skit, and we have a mother here and her son, and we want to show an encounter between the two of them that will illustrate several things. This skit starts with the father leaving the house for a meeting. Goodbye. Where's Daddy going? I want to go, too. Nowhere. He is too going somewhere, and I want to go with him. Hey, wait, Daddy. I'll put my shoes on. Johnny, I'm sorry, but you can't go. Hey, Dad, wait up. Come here, Johnny. No. I said, come here, Johnny. Now, I said it, and I won't repeat myself. If you don't obey, I'll send you to your room. Johnny, I said, come here. Look at me. Look at me when I speak to you, Johnny. I'm right here. Look at me. Johnny, it's like this. Your father had to go to an important meeting. No one else could go. He'll be right back. I promise you. I don't care. I still want to go. Sweetie, I know. Come on, let's go. Let's call Green Daddy. You've been wanting to call him all week. Let's go see what he has to say. No, I want to go with Daddy. <laughs> hey, I've got a great idea, Johnny. Come on. How about let's go to McDonald's. If you're good, I'll take you and get you a Happy Meal. Won't that be great? They've got all me right. boys. I want to go. should have been flaming red with shame to speak of children so. When babies come, you cannot go in search of pleasure with your friends, and all your happy wandering ends. The things you like you cannot do, for babies make a slave of you. I looked at her and said, "'Tis true that children make a slave of you, and tie you down with many a knot. But have you never thought to what it is of happiness and pride that little babies have you tied? Do you not miss the greater joys that come with little girls and boys. They tie you down to laughter rare, to hours of smiles and hours of care, to nights of watching and to fears. Sometimes they tie you down to tears and then repay you with a smile and make your trouble all worthwhile. They tie you fast to chubby feet and cheeks of pink and kisses sweet. They fasten you with cords of love to God divine who reigns above. They tie you wheresoe'er you roam unto a little place called home and oversee a railroad track, they tug at you to bring you back. The happiest people in the town 
are those whom babies have tied down. Oh, go your selfish way and free, but hampered I would rather be. Yes, rather than a kingly crown, I would be what you term tied down, held fast by chubby, dimpled arms, the fettered slave of girl and boy, and win from them earth's finest joy. Just thought we'd start with that one. I wanted to just mention that one of the things I think that's surprising about parenting, particularly when you get going, started in it, is that it's just uh, so much more than you bargained for. It uh, just seems so much more difficult than you ever figured it was for your folks when they were doing it. They just seem like pros, you know. And then you start, and it's something no one's ever trained you for, and all of a sudden you've got the job, and, and they just kind of deserted you. They just uh, put you off in that house, and, and uh, you're hoping the walls are pretty soundproof. And I was thinking the other day, now what... What is it that makes that, for so many, so hard? And I think one of the big challenges of becoming a parent is that at that point you have to finish growing up. It's like it's a crash course on losing your childishness because there are, there's somebody smaller than you. And by definition, if they're your child, then that makes you finally an adult. Now, maybe guys are slower at this than women. Women are already thinking, once they're pregnant, they're already kind of thinking more in an adult way. But, but guys sometimes are a little bit slower. And, um, but finally, when you hold that little one in your arms, that just sort of finishes defining you as an adult. And if you hadn't grown up yet, then there's a tremendous pressure to start growing up and to begin to leave off your childish ways. Uh, your selfishness, wanting your own way, wanting to eat when you want to eat, what you want to eat, sleep when you want to sleep, get as much sleep as you want, your, some of your activities, some of your sports, some of your peace and quiet, or just peace of mind. And uh, being able to lay that down and sacrifice it and uh, really become a grown-up. Now some, on the other hand, they manage that, and now they are the adult. And the other challenge in parenting is to not be so much of an adult that you've lost your childlikeness. It's one thing to be childish, and we need to grow beyond that. But some people grow, get to the point as a parent that they are so severe, so adult, so strict, so stern, so it's got to be this way, that they're no fun anymore. And the Lord also not only wants you to grow up here, but he also wants you to learn to be more and more childlike so that you'll be a fun person to live with. Well, let's, let's move on. But we're going to be talking about this uh, handout that you've got, Discipleship in the Family. This, a, lot, a number of these thoughts are taken from this book that I have, this ancient book called What the Bible Says About Child Training from some guy out in Texas. I don't even know if they still print this thing, but it put me on to some thoughts that were so helpful for us. And I want us to just look at that verse, Matthew 18, 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. This shows us to what degree for God it is a very high priority, the quality of attention and parenting that we give to our children and that we are helping them along rather than causing them to stumble. I mean, this is the thing that nightmares are made of. He says, uh, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do to you if you do this, 
But uh, if you had to pick between what I'm going to do to you and having a millstone hung around your neck, that's one of these things that's really big, you know, millstone, and uh, hang around your neck like a necklace and toss you in the deepest part of the ocean, says you'd pick that over what I would do to you. So, I mean, it really is uh, almost too graphic. But just shows us how important it is in God's sight this matter of, of dealing with little ones, and there's no place where we deal more with little ones than in the family. So let's, uh, let's move on through a couple of these things here. First, let's talk about the goal in uh, parenting. What's, what's our goal? In just about everything you do, you have some kind of a goal. At your job, in school, it was to get a degree. And a lot of times with parenting, we think, well, my, what's the goal? Is it uh, just to have someone that uh, can support me when I'm old? Well, we know that's not going to happen. For most Christians, I think they conceive of the goal as, as having healthy, happy, obedient children that uh, do well in school, do well in sports, love the Lord, etc., etc. In other words, we conceive of our goal in terms of success. And to the degree we see that working out, we're happy. But many times, you go through periods of time where it does not seem to be working out. And that provokes a frustration. And when you get past a certain level of frustration, it seriously impairs your ability to be the kind of parent the Lord wants you to be. And I'd like to suggest a different goal. But Luke 16.10 says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unfaithful in a very little thing is unfaithful also in much. And we see in the Bible that God puts an emphasis not as much on success, but on faithfulness. Why is that important in parenting? Because in parenting you've got more than just your will and your, your, your spouse's will involved. There are two, there, there's also the will of the child, and they may or may not be responsive to your best efforts. We realize even in God's case, being a perfect parent, it doesn't always go perfectly. There are many of God's children that are very misbehaved, very prodigal. And so even with, if you were an absolutely perfect parent, it does not necessarily ensure success, what we would define as success, at every moment along the way. And if your goal is primarily success, what's going to happen to your emotions? It's going to go up and down depending on how things look. And sometimes parenting is like flying a plane in the clouds. You have to learn to fly by your instruments. You have to understand what is it that God expects of me. And even if it doesn't seem to be working, I know I'm on course because of what God has said. Otherwise, you will trust your feelings and it will be a very bumpy ride and you may crash the plane. So it's better, in my opinion, and biblically, to think in terms of Lord, show me what it is I'm supposed to do and help me to do that, pray, trust in you. And, I mean, no one knows the way perfectly and there'll be course corrections on the way. But to the degree, that's why these parenting classes can be so important because if you have to fly by your instruments, you have to have good instruments. You have to have good information and biblical truths that can guide you. So be faithful in what? What would the path be? What is it that we need to be faithful in? In uh, Ephesians 5, it has this verse, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, of course, in the movies, they put a high emphasis on capacities. And many people would like God's capacities, or at least some of it. His strength, he, that He's present everywhere, that He can hear everything, you know. 
we are voracious for uh, wanting more information, want to know where everybody is, what everybody's doing. We want to be able to leap tall buildings with a single bound. Those, uh, any things like that are what we would call related to God, His capacity. But God wants us to imitate Him according to His attributes. His attributes. Have you ever thought of seeing a, a movie instead of it being Superman and Spider-Man, all these special powers, what if they had special character qualities? One person had a big L on it, and their, their gift in any situation was to come in and, and love. Well, that wouldn't make much of a movie. You know, not, another one's gift is serving. They come in with the towel. You know, there's a disaster, and here they come, walking in or running in with a towel and a bowl of water. Well, that's just not going to make a good movie. But God wants us to imitate him in terms of his attributes, his qualities as a person. And he wants to invade your home through you. That his word would become flesh and dwell among your children. And that you, in the way you live, the way you talk, the way you think and feel, you're communicating to your child a little bit better. Who is God? Let's look a little bit about what's the situation of the child. Your child is created in the image of God. In Genesis 1, it talks about that. But in Genesis 5, there's an interesting verse. It says that when Adam and Eve had a child, it says he was born in the image of Adam. Doesn't say that they, Adam and Eve, had a child in the image of God because you reproduce after your own kind. And by this time, Adam and Eve had fallen into sin. So your child is both in the image of God, but also in the image of sinful man. And your child will demonstrate how wonderful they are, usually when they're sleeping. They just look so angelic, and, and that's when you can really get a good picture of how much they are in the image of God. And then they wake up, and many times they demonstrate also how they are also in the image of Adam. And in Psalm 51, David says that, In sin my mother conceived me, meaning that I was born a sinner. In Latin America, people tend to think, well, little kids don't sin. They're innocent. They're innocent in terms of experience. There are a lot of things they haven't figured out how to do yet. But, uh, you know, you, you see your little child and they, they're just, their, their head is behind something and they don't think you can see them. You know, their whole body's there or something or they've got something in their hand and they don't, they just so unaccustomed to figuring out how, how do you lie in, in, a, in a convincing way. They'll get the hang of it eventually. But, uh, but the tendency, the inclination is already there from birth. And what that tells us is, is that uh, this child is neither an angel nor a demon. This child, although at times they look like one and at times they look like the other. It's kind of like a revolving Halloween at home. But, but their true identity is that they are a sinner that needs help. In other words, just like mom and just like dad. And so there are a lot of things in the scriptures that will be helpful to that child just as it's been helpful for you. That child also needs a savior and that child also needs restriction. You give a sinner enough rope and they will hang themselves. Sinfulness is very self-destructive. That's why if you give anybody on earth lots of time and lots of money and lots of power, normally you will see them go down, not up, in their integrity, in their character, in their values, in their contribution to society. It's that the reason we're not worse than we are already has something to do with our lack of opportunity and the amount of restriction on our lives. It's sad, but it's true. And the same is true with your child. 
So if you don't put any limits and restrictions on your child, then the child has more room to be self-destructive. It doesn't mean that you take away all freedoms. It means that you define their boundaries. And within those boundaries, you want to give lots of freedom and you want them to live it up, but also to have very clear boundaries and a clear consequence if they cross those boundaries. Let's look a little bit at the ages of your child. We'll start off with the baby. And we'll just say this is uh, up until the time maybe that the child begins to walk, just to arbitrarily define this. But this is a time that starts with total dependency, especially on the mother. And this is when he develops insecurity uh, through affection and attention and the care he receives from his parents. It's very important at this stage for uh, the little boy, the little girl, to receive a lot of uh, kind words and loving touch because this is building into their lives. I've got a couple of quotes on, on small children here. It says, after a child is four, his IQ potential is more or less fixed. For us parents of teenagers, I, don't, I think that's kind of <laughs> discouraging. Anyway, but between birth and that age, his ability to change is astounding. Francis Xavier, 16th century Catholic leader, said, give me the children until they are seven, and anyone may have them afterwards. How much is determined in the first early years? We move to the stage of child. Let's just say that's kind of around the time they begin to walk. And this is the time we're going to focus on mostly in these weeks. It, it is in this stage that, that the child normally tries to establish himself or herself as the only authority in their own life. You can expect that the child will fight against and reject any restriction of their freedom. They will be governed by their own desires, looking only to satisfy themselves. And this is the stage where the majority of their behavioral patterns will be set. So it's a very... Some parents think, well, this is just a turbulent time, so we'll just hang on, not really try to do much because it's, they're so difficult now, and we'll wait till later. That's not a good idea. As, as the Bible says, you sow the wind and you reap the whirlwind. And so it's when they are in this state, the, right in this beginning stage, that you have the greatest opportunity. If you wait until they're three inches taller than both of you, and then you want to oblige them to cooperate, you're not going to have the same ability to do that if they're not in agreement. I'd like to move now to talking about uh, training. We'd like to talk about two periods of time in the training, although you're always, there are always control issues and there are always teaching issues, but, but roughly we could say that it does break down somewhat in that the most uh, critical need in the first 10 years is that the child be under control. Because if they're not under control, they can't, you can't do anything else. They're just a slave of their own passions and desires. And if that somehow isn't brought under, under control, then nothing else can be accomplished either. And then in the second stage, from 10 to 18, there's a greater emphasis on teaching. And hopefully there are now uh, you're developing more inner controls, because they're less and less even around the house. And if they haven't learned how to uh, have self-control, then you're sunk, because you're not around when they're off at school and all these different outings. And uh, so it starts off, this is very important, watch this. The first 10 years, you're starting off with an external control from the parents. It's an imposed conformity. 
And it's where you communicate to them what they must do and what they must not do. And you need to have a way where they will cooperate with you, which we'll talk about more in the future. But first, we want to be clear on what, what, what are our goals. And then in the second uh, decade, it's, it's more of a focus on the development of internal control, the reasons behind the rules, although, of course, you'll tell them also the reasons behind the rules here, but there's some things that they won't be able to understand as well in the first 10 years. And uh, you can do it in more detail later on. And in the teen years, it must be more and more of a voluntary submission because you cannot any longer force them to submit. I mean, well, you can kick them out of the house, or you can, you know, you can do really severe things, but that's, uh, it's so severe that uh, you know, it's difficult to, to handle that way. But in the beginning years, you, you have them around more, and you have, you're bigger than them for a little while, and you need to make the most of that for their, for their good. We did say last week that the purpose of child discipline uh, if you're talking about some kind of physical discipline, is not that the child would pay for their crimes, it's not a punishment-oriented thing, but it's a reconciliation thing. And Wendy brought up a very good point that, well, that's not the full picture, and she's right. Deuteronomy 8.3, without looking at it for, for the sake of time, but, it, but God says, I led you in the wilderness for 40 years, and I let you be hungry so that you would learn that, and I fed you with manna, so that you would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So God had something he was trying to accomplish by disciplining them. He said, I let there be a need, then I met the need, and I want you to learn something. So the goal, primary goal in child discipline is not punishment. It's, it's correction, and it is teaching. Because if you have the goal... If you just say it, that it's reconciliation, then as long as we can just kind of paper over this thing, it's fine. The problem, problem is there's a problem there. This wasn't just in a disagreement between two adults. You disobeyed, and there's something that's out of place and needs to put back in place. And 2 Timothy 3.16, if you want to jot that down, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the Bible, all Scripture, is inspired by God, and it's profitable, and it says four things. Teaching. Reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Let's go through them. Teaching, that shows you what the path is. Reproof, if when they get off the path, it reproves them and shows them, hey, you went astray back there. Correction is getting back to the path, and training in righteousness is now how do we not get off of it again. The Bible is good for those four things. And that's very clear also in our parenting, that we give the teaching, but there also must be the reproof, and the correction, and the training. Got a comment here. Well, I just wanted to clarify that the reason Henry was uh, saying so many times last week that discipline uh, is for reconciliation is because usually everybody understands that it's for correction and for training, but they miss that last step of really reconciling with the child. They'll correct them and everything, but then, okay, you know, they do their thing and you do yours and you're a little ticked still and, and upset. And so we've really learned the importance of that reconciliation and it's that it's not complete until there's reconciliation. So you don't, that is so, so important because it's the one part that everybody leaves off. So that was what he was trying to emphasize, but he left off, it sounded like he was saying, well, you don't correct them or anything, you just get reconciled, but they're all important. Thank you. So in this process of the, of the training, child training, 
It starts with the parents administering the external controls necessary and ends with the ability for the children to have internal control or self-control. Now what happens a lot of times? Parents, for whatever reason, maybe in the first 10 years aren't really directive, aren't, uh, uh, aren't really clear on this, or even if they have a clear where they want the child to go, they don't have means to make the child do it even when they don't want to that are satisfactory. And so there's a lack of control in the first 10 years, and they'll teach and talk to them, but it just goes in one ear and out the other. Then you get to the teen years where uh, the stakes are higher, and now there's drugs and possible pregnancy and all these other things. So now the parent tries to impose a control that they didn't impose at the beginning, right at the time when the child now is supposed to have internal control. And that's why you want to do it in the first 10 years, because it's more acceptable to them. If you try to be over-controlling in the second 10 years, it does tend to explode in your face. And that's why this first 10 years is so foundational, both to them coming to respect you and knowing that you love them because of the balance between love and justice you have. And also, in this first 10 years, what you have done is you have not only shown them the path of righteousness, you have obliged them to walk in it. And they have felt the Lord's blessing if they've done that. A child, show me a child that always does whatever they want to do, and I'll show you a miserable child. It's not what, doing whatever you want that makes a person happy. It's doing what you really ought to do. That in the long run, even on the short run, it seems like fun. In the long run, deep satisfaction comes from doing what's right, not just what feels good. And in this process of training, Please remember uh, the importance that guiding principle is that whenever you do for your child what they can do for themselves, you make them a cripple. Now, there will be exceptions to that when the child's sick or something like that. But if the child is old enough to tie their shoes, teach them to tie their shoes. I remember with Caroline one time, it's the more and more the smaller child, the younger child, you keep forgetting kind of how old they are, and I, I finally realized, hey, she's old enough to tie her shoes. Uh, she'll always be the baby, but uh, this baby could tie her shoes. So I sat with her. I think she was five or something, and, and I said, now, I, I believe in you. I know you can tie your shoes. She did not believe this. And uh, we sat there, and she was tired and yawning. I'm tired. And, and then she said, I feel sick. I have a stomach ache. But all of a sudden, she got the thing tied, Stomach ache, of course, went away. Fatigue left. She raced all around the house tying her shoes for everyone. A breakthrough. So we want to try to guesstimate about the time at each stage in the child's life when they're old enough to make their bed. You know, don't rush it, but, but just keep that in your mind, that you're not doing them a favor when you're doing things for them that they really could do for themselves. Your, your goal is not to keep them an eternal child, but to train them to live without you someday. And if you always do too many things for them, their, all of their muscles will be underdeveloped. And they won't feel as good about themselves. If mom or dad always does everything for them, then they don't develop the self-respect that they will need uh, during those teen years. Let's move on. Love and justice. Now, some people that came were raised in a very strict background, authoritarian parents. Their tendency with their children is what? It's to go the other way. I'm not going to do that with my kids. 
Let's make this a warm, nurturing environment, etc. So the family that uh, has seen a lot of bad examples says, we are going to get this thing humming like a Mercedes. We uh, up at the right time, you know, maybe even almost to the point of uh, uh, yes, sir, and, and fall out for inspection. Now, but the most normal, the most normal situation that I see is the following, that uh, Often mom tends to be a little bit more with the kids, or at least more involved, even if dad is geographically close by. Uh, mom is often the most involved. And mom loves her kids and, oh, honey, and, uh, you know, kind of like the situation we saw here. It's just that love doesn't always accomplish all that you wish it would accomplish, and the, the child can't always do everything they want. And uh, so the situation escalates, it escalates, it escalates until finally, kaboom, it swings momentarily over the other side as mother's frustration and anger peaks and hits the little red dot up there, you know, where uh, she is no longer in her right mind. And, and she does or says things that are way off of the chart there. Within very short time, remorse drags her quickly back to this side and again, for a long time, it's on the nice side until once again it zooms over there. The problem is nothing seems to work. And the sense of guilt keeps growing, and you think, if I were a better parent, this would not happen. Now, I find it very comforting to now, thinking about these things, to see how frustrated God got with his kids. In, in, in Genesis 6, it says, he was grieved he'd ever had children. It says, he just go flood the earth, you know. And there are times in the prophets, he says, I don't know what to do with you. Have you ever said that about one of your children? God has said that about his own children sometimes. God. And he is a perfect parent, and he knows all things. And in the Bible, we even see him getting frustrated with sinners. So that should be a comfort to us that he understands you more than you realize. But there must be a balance here. If you have a family that's too far on the rules side, control, strictness, you can crush the spirit of your child. It's not a fun place to be. It's all just uh, stand up straight and do what you're told and don't say anything. And, uh, and if you have a situation that's way too much on the love side in the sense of permissiveness and, oh, honey, anything is fine, then you will also have a situation of a, of a miserable child. Uh, because it's not getting to do whatever you want that makes you happy. It's doing what you ought to do. And so we want to talk about what, what are ways to keep that balance and what's something you can focus on that's clear enough in the situation, particularly in the first six to eight years, so that you kind of have something to track on even when the sky has clouded over. Now, it is important, and if you want to do training of your children, your children can't just be a sideline. That's one of the things that's difficult, is realizing how huge of a chunk out of your person, your schedule, your life, having children takes. You used to be able to sit there and have a meal like a sane, normal human being. You had witty banter in the conversation. You could throw in a well-timed joke, but now they just spill tea on your pants. That stuff is drooling down. There's stuff thrown all over the floor, and one of them is yelling, and the other just messed in his pants. You just can't even recognize yourself anymore. It takes so much, 
And there are times, listen, where we resent it. It's hard to die to yourself. This is where the hard part of parenting is, is not getting to be a kid anymore. You've got to be the grown-up. And you're the one that ends up cleaning up the mess and all of that that you didn't do. But it is a momentary thing, even though it seems like it's eternal. That first 12 years or so, and if you have four like us, it does stretch it out a bit. But even if it's, say, two decades, people are living longer now. You know, people are living to age 90. So 20 years out of 90 is the small part of it. That's less than a fourth of that. And it's a moment of passing opportunity. And if you don't take, especially in those first 10 years, make it a priority, not just to run them around to places, but what you invest in their lives and how you guide them. If you don't make that a priority in the years to come, it's just time for regrets. So if you have little children or are about to, uh, this is a key time to say, hey, other things are optional. This is a must. There was someone that gave a parenting talk to us uh, years ago that was such an example of placing that as a priority over many other important things. And, uh, and I'm so glad I, you know, we got that message early on. Now let's talk about a couple of the things we saw in that skit. That skit was carefully crafted, in case you didn't realize what uh, Cindy and Rocky were doing. One of the things we were looking at there is how is rebellion demonstrated? Well, first let's talk about what is rebellion, because... If I were to tell you just one thing to focus on in the first six years of a child's life, apart from loving them to death, looking them in the eyes, holding them in your, in the, by the hand, sitting them on your lap, wrestling with them, making up plays, playing hide-and-seek, you know, love them to death. But apart from that, when it comes to child training and discipline, if I were to give you one thing to track on, one thing to pay attention to, it would be this issue of rebellion. We are born with a rebellious heart. And what does that mean? What is rebellion? Rebellion is the voluntary rejection of authority and can be expressed actively or passively. Parents need to learn to recognize the ways that their children express rebellion and how to handle a situation when it happens. Rebellion is normal. Now, some of you say, well, my child never has rebelled. They are six years old, and any time mommy says, do this, Sally or Johnny, they do it. I want to give you a tip. Normally, the child that seems really, really good and really, really easy in the first ten years is really, really hard in the next ten years. And I want to give you my theory why. Not always. But the child that... Uh, the way their personality is wired is they want to please the people that are most important in their lives. Who are the people most important in the lives of a small child? Mommy, mommy, you know. How about in the teen years? Don't get away from me. Don't hug me. Don't, you know, don't even be seen with me. Who is important for the teenager? Their peers. And so what looked like a docile angelic child the first 10 years is that they had just decided you're the one I want to please what do you want I'll do it in the teenage years it's their friends they want to please what do my friends want and that's what I want to do so they have not changed who they are they just changed in who they wanted to please just my theory but anyway rebellion 
I might have discouraged a few. But if you have a child, it's very difficult in the first six years. The others were so easy, and now this one. You thought you knew how to parent until you had this child, and they're no on everything, and they, they will fight you and argue with you. Often they're your best teenager. Why? Because they live by something on the inside, and they are more impervious to outside control, which in the first 10 years is very difficult. But if you can help them at all in the first 10 years, it could be in the second 10 years, they turn out to be your straightest arrow. You must learn to recognize rebellion in your child. Now, the, some of the things we saw uh, in the skit is when a child ignores instructions, uh, defiantly says no, defiantly walk, come here, Johnny, goes the other way. This is the kind of child I was. Won't look at you, look me in the eyes, won't look you in the eyes. Back talk, uh, refuses to say yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. We found that it was very important in giving instruction to the child that they look at us and that they give some verbal response. It's almost like signing a document. So they don't want to do that. They don't want to say, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, because that means I have heard and I accept. And they don't want to do that. But we found if we could train them to do that, it was like they realized by the time they said that, hey, I think I just gave in. And we got them in the right way before they even kind of knew what was happening. Throwing a fit, banging around, throwing things, etc., yelling. The refusal of correction. You go to, to discipline them and they reject it. And, and either they, they run off or they, they scream much more than anything that what you did to them was appropriate. You know, I mean, it was something maybe that hurt five seconds or something. And half hour later, they're still crying. What are they doing? They're disciplining you. They know you don't like to hear them cry. All right, you're going to get it. <laughs> so if we ever did physical discipline, uh, you know, I might hit my leg or something, and I'd see how long does that, can I even feel that? Five seconds? If they're still crying after ten seconds, I'd say, you can cry quietly now. No need to yell, you're not feeling it there. You're just upset with me. Continuously forgets instructions. That might be an example of rebellion. Or the passive form that you've probably heard of before. I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And it's demonstrated in attitudes of anger and disgust. Not in your house, of course, but in some homes here. Or probably not even here, right? Now, the things that uh, came up in that skit were a number of ways that many parents try to use to deal with rebellion that are relatively ineffective or worse than ineffective, they can even be harmful. The reasoning approach. Now listen, honey, the reason you can't go with dad is this and that and the other. A two-year-old child doesn't do things primarily because they've thought it out for a long period of time and can write out ten reasons. And so the reasoning approach usually is not very effective in the first five years. Uh, once the child has accepted your authority and responded to you, then you talk with them and explain things. that No problem then. But you don't explain things in order to overcome their rebellion. Second, if you're good, well, I'll take you to McDonald's for a happy meal. Bribery. This sets them up for a life of crime. You want to try to avoid paying them because it's like uh, paying ho uh, hostage takers. They'll take more hostages. And so they, they think, this is really good. I misbehave. 
and then they pay me to come back. And so I misbehave, and this is, uh, this, I can turn this into a business. So what bribery is, it's feeding one area of, of sinful desire in an attempt to control another area of sinful desire. So they like candy, much, and money, much more candy than they should eat. But I want them to do this. So I will feed this area of sinful desire because right now I'm mostly interested in controlling this area of sinful desire. Terrible when you say it that way, isn't it? What will the other children think? Playing on the child's emotions. Or uh, doesn't it make you embarrassed what people will think watching you act like this? Then they hit the teen years. That's all they think about is if I go to school like that, I will be embarrassed. And so... Their life is, in the teen years, totally guided by what do other people think. But if, if you taught them to think that way when they were three, what, don't you care what other people think? So finally they get the message, I'm supposed to care what other people think. And then they're a slave of others' opinions. You, do, you need to teach them to do what is right because it is right, not because of what other people will think. Redirecting attention. Oh, look over there, Johnny. Now, when a child is really little or you've already had a number of disciplinary issues, you may use some distraction. I'm not saying none of these things are never, 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 but you need to realize what it is you are doing uh, with your child. Deception. At the beginning, mom said, well, daddy's not going anywhere. Well, you know, that wasn't true. Teach him to lie. That's good. Verbal abuse. At the end, see, this thing had degenerated to this level where she's calling him names, she's saying things. And at that point, moms and dads, you are at a level, uh, a red light level of scarring your child's soul. That's why you need a form of discipline that you can apply when you're still in your right mind. Because when you go over that limit, you don't know what you're going to say or do. Now maybe you are really controlled and you won't do anything physically to the child but you may say something to the child that, frankly, will leave a much deeper impression than any of the physical things you might have done to them. You may have something even now in your own heart that your mom or dad said to you in a moment of anger that you have never gotten over. And that's why you want to find a way of disciplining that keeps you safe from scarring their souls. Uh, requesting or begging, please, Johnny, be good for mommy. Now, if the policeman who has authority stops you and says, Would you please, uh, gets down on his knees, please, uh, I'm just so tired of you speeding, won't you please this time? I mean, do you realize how hard this is for me? You know, you would say, Wait, Would you get up off your knees? I mean, give me a ticket if you want. But he would lose all respect as an authority figure. And when you, when you demean yourself as an authority figure to beg your child to do what they're supposed to do, you're not helping them learn to respect authority. And if they don't respect your authority, listen, they won't respect God's authority. That's why it's important. It's not because you're anybody. You're representing God in the situation as weakly and imperfectly. But they need to respond to your authority just like you need to respond to your authorities. This isn't just the law of the jungle. The strongest one gets to be in charge because someday they're going to be the strongest one. You want to say, this is a chain of authority, and I am under God, and I am under the authorities that God has given me at work and at church and in my life, and in the same way, I have to be obedient and submissive. You do too. We're all in the same boat. All sinners need restriction in order to keep from hurting ourselves. 
And finally, the last thing that mother said was, I think, something like, you're on restriction or go to your room for the rest of your life or something like that. But that would be like a timeout or something like that, which if the child is young, one thing that little children have lots of is time. And so a timeout, and also after a relatively short amount of time, they forgot what it was. And so they, all they remember now is that mom is mad. And so it is better in the first five years to have a means of discipline that doesn't take too long, get it over with, get us back restored, feeling good, happy, playing again. You want it to get a little bit shorter. This half-hour timeout or something like that, for a two-year-old, there's probably a more merciful way to go about it and, frankly, accomplish it in a better way. Well, listen, friends, God wants to manifest His life through you in that home. Like I said before, He wants His Word to become flesh in you and dwell in the midst of your children. I want just to do something momentarily tonight. I want all the moms to stand up. Just all the moms here. And I want the rest of us to give them a hand. Come on, everybody. We love you. You can, you can sit down. But we love you, and most moms carry around a burden feeling like I'm not the mom I should be. And God wants you to receive His grace tonight and His care over you. You are still His little girl, and He loves you very, very much. And listen, you are the best mom in the world for your children, and you need to believe that. It doesn't mean that you won't make mistakes. You'll make mistakes. But the Lord says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the Lord says in the Scriptures and says to us tonight, I have trouble with my kids too. Take heart. Be faithful in what I've given you to do. And the Lord will do His part. Just remember, on the night in which He was betrayed, Jesus had been up all night. And He didn't get any breakfast in the morning. And for what? To get spit on and beaten up by those he had served. And that's frankly how a lot of us feel sometimes as parents. You give and give and give, and then it kind of gets thrown in your face. And maybe some of you are feeling like that tonight. So we're just going to stop now for a word of prayer to close with. Just close your eyes. Because some of us are dealing with huge feelings of failure. Let's just bring that to the Lord today. He's the one that heals the brokenhearted. And God is looking to bring you to the end of yourself so that you can get to know Him better. You are still His little child. Nothing I can say will make it easier to be a parent or bring an instant solution. But now in prayer, let's embrace His promise that He will be with us. Lord, we come to You tonight. We need You so much. We weren't even very good children, and now we're having to be parents. So we just pray for you to give us your heart, for you to open our eyes in a way like they've never been opened before. First, to understand who we need to become, Lord, and not view our children as the main problem. It's what you want to do first in our lives, that your word would become flesh, that we would be dedicated to your way and to your path, and then that you would show us clear things that would be of help and blessing to our children. We want to... Bless them. We want, Lord, to give them the best opportunity they can have. And even if they do depart for a while in uh, 
difficult paths, Lord, our love will pursue them, and we trust with your power it will bring them home someday. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. life. If the message has encouraged you, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast. We hope you'll join us again for the next podcast of Bringing Truth to Life.